Hi, I'm Andy Sohn. Camp Arcadia and Church Extension Fund are two of my favorite ministries. I came to camp for teen and family weeks and worked on staff there for four of the best summers of my life. I grew in mind, body, and spirit. CEF's mission to help build God's kingdom is integral to places like camp that make ministry happen. CEF provides loan and investment options for Lutherans and other ministries. To learn more about how you can get involved, visit mi-cef.org. Church Extension Fund, building the future in Him. Welcome to the 2022 season of the Arcadia Cast. Camp Arcadia's Dean and Lecturers program recorded live in the assembly during the 100th anniversary season. In groupings of episodes, we will feature each series of lectures shared during camp's 2022 season. So grab your cup of coffee and imagine Lake Michigan out the windows to your right as you tune in and join the camp community in listening and learning. I, uh, I want to uh, get into a, a text that is the, the uh, most poignant Christian uh, text about the flood. Uh, and to me, it's the text that I go to when I ponder everything that's uh, implied or everything that happens in stories like the story of the flood and uh, the kind of paradigm about God's relationship to the world that the flood story becomes. Um, the flood story is, of course, the story of God's judgment against everything that's screwed up among humankind in the world and God's saving of a few people. Uh, and that's a pervasive story all through the Bible that most people are judged, but the chosen few are saved. And um, a couple of you have given me texts that you want me to wrestle with, which are New Testament versions, even on Jesus' lips, of saying that very same thing. Many are called, few are chosen. Uh, the, the door is narrow. Only a few are going to get in. Uh, so you better yourself try to get in now get on the boat or you're going to be lost, and so forth and so forth. My go-to place for f wrestling blessing from all that business in the Bible, including the flood story and all the stories like it, is the story in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following. Um, It's addressed to people who are, the letter, second, first letter of Peter is addressed to people who are suffering persecution. And first Peter is writing them about their suffering. And in the middle of this, uh, talking about the suffering, their suffering and the suffering of people who deserve what happens and all that business, uh, we read this. Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, 
when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And then he goes on to talk about baptism, which all of this prefigures. And that's a very complicated thing, how baptism and the flood story relate to each other. But did you catch that little narrative of what happens in the life of Jesus on the cross? Crucified in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He went and made a proclamation, and the Greek verb is the... Uh, the uh, verb for preaching, from which we get the, 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 Old Testament, or the New Testament's word for proclamation, kerygma. The kerygma is the preaching of the church, the preaching of the gospel. And it's kerykso that Jesus does when he goes to, to preach to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, that time that only a few were saved. So crucified in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, he goes and finds all the people who didn't make the boat. the whole populated world that perished. The vast majority that never made it, that never made the boat, that God didn't save. And Jesus goes to preach to them. This, by the way, is one of the primary texts from which we get the teaching in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended to hell. And that is right in between, died and rose again. Between death and coming out of the tomb, he went to preach to the spirits who didn't make it. So the flood generation was not forgotten by everyone. But here's the question then. If Jesus went, the crucified Jesus went to preach to those people, what would he say? There are those who have said over the course of Christian theological history that Jesus went to taunt the damned. <laughs> to make their suffering even worse. That's especially uh, found in Calvinist tradition in which it is taught that the damned were predestined to damnation and they never belonged anywhere else except there. And Jesus goes to taunt them. That doesn't work for me. And there were plenty of other theologians over the centuries 
who said, Luther said he went there to proclaim his victory. That could mean multiple things. But I'm with the people who say that when Jesus went to preach, he kind of always preached the same thing. He, he pretty much always says, no matter who he's with or where he's going or what he's doing, he pretty much always says, okay, people, come with me. Come with me. And he also says stuff like, I am with you, no matter what. I am with you. That's what he says. So come with me. Luther loved to say, and I quote this all the time, Luther said, what does it mean that Christ did that, that he descended to hell? He said, it means that there's no place I could ever end up, nothing I could ever do, nothing that might ever happen to me, except even there, he is Lord for me. Which was his way of saying, this means nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even that, because he will always be after you. The Greek is a stri strictly a word for prison. I don't remember that the word is used anywhere else in Peter, and I have to go look and see how, where the word functions. I think it's the common ordinary word for a jail. I, I, I'd have to double check. I didn't study that particular word in preparation for this. But, um, but the, the prison, I mean, every prison is in a way the place where the condemned are locked up. <laughs> So it functions as the perfect metaphor for where, where the souls are. And, and all the stuff about hell, you know, has a long and curious history. And, and uh, uh, we don't have time to get into all of that, the, the way the whole business developed, that there was this place where the, where the, the, uh, the uh, people who crucified the martyrs and all of that end up. Uh, in Jewish thinking. Of course, in Greek, there's the underworld, the Hades, and sometimes, sometimes uh, the Bible uses the word Hades, which is really the Greek underworld, and it's not exactly hell. It's a place where you go and have these adventures uh, after life, and everybody ends up there. Uh, and uh, so... It, all the metaphors and everything else, the mythology and the metaphors that go with what happens after death are manifold and confusing and they don't all fit together. Take it from me, whatever happens after this is a mystery and nobody can describe it completely because not that many people have been there and come back and talked about it. <laughs> but in any case, 
Um, I find comfort and blessing in this, that all these people in the course of human history who have, in, for whatever reason, gotten uh, to the end of their life and never made the boat are not forgotten by God. And Jesus goes after them even now. So that's where I always go, to the crucified Christ for my comfort and my blessing. Back to Genesis and to the rest of the Bible then about all this killing that we've been talking about. The fact that God says in Genesis 8, I'm never going to do that again, and in effect says curse does not work. Curse and punishment do not solve the problem of human evil. I'm going to try something else instead, blessing, and then chooses the people who will bring blessing to all the families of the earth, which always I've taught this many times here. This is the Bible's way of saying Israel is God's last hope for the world because the world is headed into curse and blessing is God's last attempt to do something about it. And that's what Israel will do for God, is be the people of blessing. And yet, the killing goes on. Genesis 38, just for example. Uh, it's the story of Judah's uh, sons, the, the patriarch Judah and, and his, uh, his uh, sons, first one marries a woman named Tamar and God didn't like him so God killed him <laughs> so then she became the wife automatically of the next child and their next son in line and he saw to it that when he had intercourse with her she didn't get pregnant because he didn't want to lose out on the rights of the firstborn by giving the wife of his brother a child which would then give that person the inheritance and he wouldn't get it so God killed him uh, God visits the plague on the firstborn of Egypt and then God drowns the whole of Pharaoh's army in the sea and the stories of the wilderness wanderings you get all kinds of killing and slaughter. One day, 250 respected elders of the Israelites went to Moses and said, don't you think you're getting a little heavy-handed here? You know, we're not all crazy. We're not all bad people. Why don't you get a little advice now and then? And God's, or Moses says, oop, you should have never said that, and tells everybody else, stand back. And he tells God what's happened, and the earth opens up and swallows all 250 of those people because they asked Moses to reconsider his leadership style. And then a whole bunch of the people started restlessly complaining against Moses that he got the 250 people swallowed up by the earth, so God sent a plague that killed 14,000 of the people 
who are complaining. These are just what the stories say. The God is still big time in the killing business. Numbers 15, there's a story of a guy who is seen picking up a few sticks on the Sabbath day. They run and tell Moses. Moses talks to God. What should we do? We found a guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. God says, kill him. So they killed him in front of all the people to give everybody the warning, don't pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. Doesn't really seem like a capital punishment matter, but it's the way the story goes. God orders Joshua and his army to slaughter every living thing, man, woman, child, young, old, in the entire land of Canaan to make room for the people of Israel coming in out of the desert. We have a side word for that, genocide. God is said to have authorized genocide. Then we have all these laws, I mean, I could go on and on here, all the things for which God demands the death penalty. One of which is murdering someone else. Whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. Exodus 21, 12. If it was not premeditated, but came about by an act of God, then I will appoint for you a place to which the killer may flee. So that's a case in which a person can't live among us anymore. We'll have a sanctuary place where those kind of people can live. But you kill somebody for any reason at all, you can't live with us anymore. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever kidnaps a person shall be put to death. Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. You shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. This is why so many people were accused of witchcraft and put to death, and it's still going on in places like Papua New Guinea, where people who get angry with certain women, they never do it to men, but they get angry at women, and they go round up and find a bunch of these women, and they put them to death, and they claim that they had witnessed sorcery. Whoever sacrifices to any other god than the Lord shall be devoted to destruction. Here's an interesting one, Exodus 22. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will heed their cry, my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows and your children orphans. <laughs> so don't take advantage of widows and orphans, or I'll see to it that your people are widowed and orphaned. Leviticus also says anybody who curses father or mother shall be put to death. If a man commits adultery, this is Leviticus 20, 
If a man can, commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both shall be put to death. We're trying to follow all sorts of other Old Testament laws these days. People want stuff like this posted on public places. But do we really want to start enforcing all these laws? Adulterers shall be put to death, both of them. Absolutely. It's in the Bible. All I'm doing is reading the Bible. That's all they were doing was reading the Bible. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And the whole congregation together shall stone the blasphemer. It's a good thing there's no bugged devices in my garage where I speak to the small motor machines that don't work the way they're supposed to. Else I would not be here. I would have been stoned long ago, many times, for what I have said about my lawnmower, as though God had something to do with it. But here's, here's, uh, here's one that is in that same genre, but from which I will find, show you how we can wring a blessing from this one. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 and following. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the gate of that place. They shall say to the elders of the, of, of the town, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. And so you shall purge this evil from your midst and all Israel will hear and be afraid. So there you go. Rebellious teenagers. Stone them. And God seems to, uh, God seems to go along with this program in the history of Israel. Um, when there were rebellious kings uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff happened. And uh, uh, there was this famous King Manasseh who finally uh, brought into Jerusalem the worship of all manner of other gods and he was said to have sacrificed his own sons to Molech and all this kind of stuff. 
And for 55 years, he reigned in Jerusalem, trying to keep the place afloat by involving Israel with all these other peoples and their religions. And then after he died, his first son who took over was very soon assassinated, and they put a nine-year-old boy on the throne named Josiah, who becomes the king who does the great reform, cleans up the temple for the first time, and God knows how many centuries uh, had a celebration of Passover. Passover hadn't been celebrated in the memory of anybody. And, uh, and uh, here's the judgment just before everything fell apart on the reign of Josiah. 2 Kings 23. Moreover, Josiah put away all the mediums and wizards, the teraphim, the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem so that he established the words of the law that were written in the book that the priest Hilkiah had found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That includes a lot of people, including David and Hezekiah and some other faithful people. Josiah was the most faithful person ever. And the book that Hilkiah found in the temple, if you read what they said was in that book in the story of 2 Kings 23, you realize what they found was what we call the book of Deuteronomy. Moses' farewell speech to the people, which says, plain as day, if you obey the law of God, God will keep you safe and nothing can happen to you. If you disobey the law of God, you will suffer terrible punishment, you will be destroyed, you will go into exile, and you will wish you'd never existed. Go read the covenant sanctions in the book of Deuteronomy sometime. It's chilling what God says will happen to you. But it promises if you do keep the law, you will be saved and nothing can happen to you. So Josiah and his advisors did this reform, and they obeyed the law so that this is what the narrator finally says. Before him there was no one like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his might according to the law of Moses. Still, and then the narrator continues, still the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight like I did Israel, which had been destroyed 150 years earlier. I will reject this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. And within just a few years, the entire place was in rubble and the people were exiled. Despite Josiah having obeyed perfectly to the point that this narrator brags, there was nobody more faithful ever.
it's amazing that the, the religion survived. Uh, the crushing blow of that promise being voided by the fact that God just couldn't get over Grandpa Manasseh and all his stuff. I don't really particularly like this bit of theology that you can be as faithful as you want and God might destroy you because God is still angry at your grandfather. Doesn't sound like very good theology to me. But that's what the book says. So there's plenty in here yet despite God swearing curse and punishment is not the answer. The Bible is still full of it. Curse and punishment being God's answer. So where do you go, especially when it's the whole nation at stake to wring a blessing out of all this? Well, I'm gonna do something I've done here a few times before and one or two of your handful of you here may have heard me do this before because this is one of my most precious texts in the entire canon, New Testament or Old. Remember the law in Deuteronomy 21 about what you do with rebellious children? There's a story in the book of Hosea and it's written as a story. This is, uh, this is the story of God following the rubrics of Deuteronomy 21, taking child Israel to the city gates and explaining this child rebelled against me. I tried everything and nothing worked. So what is the judgment? And of course the judgment will be the stones must fly. Here's the actual story as it's a poem, a story in poetic form in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, this is God talking, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me, sacrificing to the Baals, offering incense to idols. So this is following the form of the speech. You take the child to the city gates and explain what all they did and how they rebelled. No matter what I did, they just kept going further and further into darkness. I was the one that taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up in my arms. I didn't know that I was the one that healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like people who hold infants to their cheeks. You know how you do that? Because you just get addicted to the smell of a newborn baby. That was Israel to me, says God. I just loved the smell. I'd put them up to my face and smell my baby.